Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2016 AWP conference in Los Angeles. The recording features Angelica Freitas, Tiffany Higgins, Hilary Kaplan, John Keane, and Ellen Dore Watson. You will now hear Ellen Dore Watson provide introductions. Your heroes for coming to the last session of AWP. I wish that I had caipirinhas and pão de queijo to hand out. Alas, it didn't come through at the last minute. <laughs> I'm Ellen Dory Watson. I direct the Poetry Center at Smith and translate from Brazilian Portuguese. I'm also the poetry and translation editor at Massachusetts Review. So um, I'd be happy to read translations from, from people. And we read translations. The online submission program closes on May 1st. But if you send at the regular email address, general email address, you can send things in over the summer as well. Delighted to be moderating this panel with some old friends and new friends. And what we're going to do is each person's going to speak for about 12 minutes, including talking about their work and reading some samples of their work, and then hopefully there'll be a discussion between them a little bit and we'll end questions from you. So write down your questions if you have any. First is going to be John Keane. John is the author of the novel Annotations, uh, Seismosis, a collection of poems with artist Christopher Stackhouse, and Counter Narrative, which is short fiction. And he's the translator of Brazilian author Hilda Hill's novel Letters from a Seducer. He teaches at Rutgers University, Newark, and we're very eager to hear what he has to say. Welcome, John. I'm just going to plunge right in with uh, several readings in Portuguese and translations. And the first uh, poet I'm going to read is uh, Ana Cristina Cesar, and I'm going to read the poem Vacilos de Focação. Precisaria trabalhar afundar com vocês a lajes locas nesta arte ininterrupta de pintar a poesia não telegráfica ocasional me deixa sola solta a mas é do impossível do real I would need to work to sink into like you insane nostalgias into this art uninterrupted of painting poetry does not telegraph occasionally leaves me alone and free at the mercy of the impossible the real Selfishness, which is selfishness in English. Estou tentando obra-primar e eu tento a, to a e nada vem. Selfishness. I'm trying to create a masterpiece and I attempt it, become it, and nothing comes. Claudio Roquete Pinto. Space writing, I'll just read this in English, on a photo by Man Ray. To write in space, the arc of the arm more adroit than the startling of ideas in flight, hooves clopping the trace that hands on heel, mad fluttering of wings crisscross, circumvolutions of improvisations in the frame after the lapse remains clear eye, itinerary of medusas, writing that lasts for the shudder, the armed eye, the shudders capture. And a little section from Hilda Ilse's Cartes de un Seducteur, Letters from a Seducer. And uh, this was uh, particularly important to me because Ilse was a very famous uh, poet, and uh, then she turned to prose, and in this little passage, you can hear the poetry of her prose. E deveria ter procurado os cocos e os palmitos, mas fico a escrever com este único toco, e quando acabar o toco, troco um coco por outro toco de lápis lá na venda do boy. And I should have looked for coconuts and palm hearts. But I'm here writing with this lone stump, and when I stop, I'll swap a coconut for another pencil stub over there at the ox shop, so named because an ox passed through there once and let out a huge fart. They sell cachaça, peanut fudge, Maria mole, dried meat, tins, cans of sauce. 
But I should have gone up to gather coconuts, palm hearts, and I didn't. I keep talking about what I don't want. My fingernails, tiny and filthy, and my toenails, good to say, they are clean. One crucial aspect of my work as a translator has been a focus on areas that other literary translators overlook for a range of reasons. These include literature, especially poetry by women writers, as well as writers of African descent and LGBTQ writers, and thinking intersectionally by writers who occupy these and other identities simultaneously, working class and poor, and so on all of whom tend to be less frequently translated than writing by men, writing by white writers, even in multi-ethnic societies, and cis-heterosexual straight writers. I have translated both poetry and prose, fiction and nonfiction, and I find that I enjoy translating poetry much more, though I find it considerably more challenging because of poets' use of form and the inner resources of their native languages. And this is the interesting thing I think about all of the poets I just read, is that all three of them are using specific resources that only exist in Portuguese that English does not have and so for which, for which I have to find uh, an approximate uh, resource in, in English. Translating poetic form across languages can be extremely difficult. This was, I read, one of the areas on which Google engineers were intensely focusing a few years ago. And every language's intrinsic resonances, possibilities for semantic polysemy based on sound, linguistic resonances based on sociocultural and political context, and so on, often mean that poetry can be difficult to bring from one language into another. And the same is true at times for fiction. So I'll just say one last thing because we have very little time. I just want to talk about with Hildale's letters from a seducer. The US and Brazilian publishers who had a unique deal to issue several of Hill's books and after inviting me to write an introduction to the first book-length translation of Hill's into English, a collaboration effort by Nathaniel and Rachel Gatinjo Araujo, the two houses, Nightboat Books and Abolia Editor asked me to translate this novel. I eagerly and perhaps foolhardily agreed to do it. And so, it's really a crazy book, right? A wonderful book, but a crazy book. So I'm very happy I did. I've written a paper about translating Ilse that will appear in a collection on her, edited by one of her superb translators, Adam Morris, and uh, the eminent young scholar Bruno Carvalho. But I should say that Ilse is a challenge even for Brazilian readers, and this text in particular is tough because of the numerous registers, tones, allusions, and discourses she includes in it, sometimes welding them into a single sentence. In addition, as the brief excerpt I read suggests, Ilse is not only a poet, but a playful one, and there are moments of music and sonority in her prose that English cannot hope to convey except through a very different but analogous approach. That is, as we know, frowned on in contemporary American fiction. So Hills is writing fiction actually that uh, is of a kind that is really um, considered, would be considered problematic in many MFA programs, which I think is important to note. I was very happy when the Hills book did appear because I think it introduced an utterly original voice, a Brazilian woman's voice, into the American conversation. And I'll stop there. And I forgot to even remind you that this is the Brazilian Women Writers Panel. And, and so these are translators of 20th and 21st century poetry and fiction by women in Brazil. And our second presenter is Tiffany Higgins, who is the author of And Aeneas Stares Into Her Helmet, selected by Evie Shockley. Her poems appear in Poetry, Kenyon Review, Taos Journal, and elsewhere. Her chapbook, The Apparition at Fort Bragg, is forthcoming in 2016 from Iron Horse Literary Review, selected by Camille Dungy. She translates the work of Alex Simões and other contemporary Brazilian poets. Thank you, Ellen, and I want to thank Hillary for bringing us all together this year. So I'd like to start by talking about Alice Santana, a Rio poet who was born in 1988. And it's very fitting that John should have started with Ana Cristina Cesar because Alice sees herself in the lineage coming from Ana Cristina and uh, the marginal generation poets whose poetry was marked by a colloquial language and informal tone, and uh, you'll hear that in Elise's work as well. I want to say that uh, Brenda Hillman is working very, very, very hard on a beautiful translation of Ana Cristina Cesar's work, so I really hope to, to see that in the next year. Yeah, let me just start with a little poem that will just dive us right into Elise's 
work. Let's see. I'd like you to listen for how the poem moves from like a little domestic, predictable moment into a sudden shift of perspective into something that is public, outdoors, and dramatic and unpredictable. Corto as unhas depois do banho, moles pela água quente, as calçadas estavam repletas de jacas maduras, pensou. Caídas, tombadas, maduras, feito obesos que se soltam da, dos prédios as jacas suicidas. After the bath, I cut my nails, soft from the hot water. The sidewalks will be covered in ripe jackfruit, I thought, fallen, tumbled down, ripe, as if they were obese people who jump from the buildings the jackfruit suicides. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so yeah, I'd like to just hear some of more of those perspective shifts that are acts of the imagination on the part of Elisi. And uh, let's start with, uh, I'll read just like a couple uh, lines in the Portuguese just to start us off and then go into the English. English. Logo de cara que ele morro. Gigante, recortando do seu, nos encarava, sim, a habitual superioridade das montanhas. Straight away, that giant hill cutting the sky was facing us without the habitual superiority of mountains. The sensation of having to twist one's neck to catch sight there on high of the top, by some error of proportion, now I too was the mountain. Without any doubt, I was the mountain, 130 stories high, leaning over the seashore. I didn't feel too large, but taken by surprise by the arm and obliged to react, I could A, embrace the mountain, B, turn my back to it. She actually, Alice, began writing poetry uh, because at the age of 15, her father, who's a photographer, Alexandre Santana, took her to the archives of Ana Cristina Cesar. Um, she says, uh, this is the time I decided to write poetry. My dad took me on a trip for him to photograph Armando Freitas Filho, one of Brazil's greatest poets and the curator of Ana Cristina's archives. So I went to his house with my dad at 15, and I started to show my terrible teenage poems to Armando, who since then, 13 years ago, became my mentor, advisor, good friend. Uh, and I just want to note that Ana Cristina Cesar's work was uh, happening during the military dictatorship, right? And uh, as a result, then Ana Cristina and her friends published independently. Um, and so I guess one question I have is either, given that Alice takes her inspiration from that lineage, then is there any parallel in Brazil's society today? Any, what are the political resonances that Alice is speaking to? Uh, I think I'll read just one more poem. Ausencia. Tenho-te escrito com calma, cartas em um caderno azul. Arranco da espiral e não posto, por preguiça ou nem morta. Tenho medo da espera. Absence. I have to write letters to you calmly, in a notebook covered in blue. I rip them from the spirals and never send them to you, because of laziness or even rage. I have a fear of waiting. In the course of days or even weeks, a horrible animal arrives to pursue me from within. Or could it be I myself in the animal, a rat who grinds and gnashes me? I lose a lot of time trying to give names to the beasts who are climbing the curtain of this room. And I should say, we have a chapbook coming up from Toad Press in August of excerpts from Habu Jibalea, Tale of the Whale. So please look for that. And then also on Tuesday, World Literature Today is publishing a blog 
where I interview Alice and have some of her poetry. So that's just this coming Tuesday. So I'd like to just shift rapidly and actually speaking to some of the questions that John brought up. I've been delighted at the reception that Alice's work has been greeted with. And then also I'm, I'm a little troubled as well, to be honest, uh, because I was here last year uh, hanging out with these fine folks and reading the work of Alexi Mois, who identifies as a queer black writer from Salvador. And I've been sending his work out, not really getting very much traction on that, honestly, except from I'm very grateful for writing the walls down, an anthology of queer writing edited by Amir Rabia and Helen Clonaris, who are Bay Area writers and are actually specifically looking for queer people of color writing and also international writers of color. So that's been fantastic. So just contrasting like my publishing experience there. So what I've been asking myself is which Brazilian women's experiences are being represented or are actually not being represented through publication and or translation. The brief answer in my observation, and I'd like to hear from other people, is uh, Afro-Brazilian writers and uh, indigenous women's experiences as well, and poor writers included in that. So um, the special grant issue on Brazilian fiction uh, had few black writers uh, the 2013 Frankfurt, Germany Biennial Exposition that focused actually on Bahia State uh, and had around 17 writers, and they published this enormous tome translated into French and German and English, and uh, none of them identified as black. And this, I followed Facebook threads from writers from Salvador, Bahia, and this is very troubling and taken as an affront to the community. And the basic attitude was, what? They couldn't find a black writer of merit. Did you say none? None. None. Okay, so the Frankfurt, Germany 2013 Biennial Exposition published around 17 writers from Bahia State, and none of them identified as black. And this was, yeah, super, super, super troubling. An anthology was published kind of in response from the small collective from, from Salvador Card Ogun's Toques Negros, a small publishing venture, right, trying to kind of respond to that. I want to speak to a very, very brief debate. So recently in the past six months related to this, a Bahia writer, Livia Natalia, and um, Salgado Marignan, our esteemed visitor here from Brazil, along with Angelica, of course, <laughs> has been, um, we were talking about this yesterday. So Livia Natalia, there is a a festival in Ilieus, which is in the south of Bahia State, called Poesia nas Ruas, Poetry in the Streets. And a lot of writers came from Salvador and had their poems published on the sides of buses and other outdoor spots. So hers was a five-line poem that plays on Carlos Trumont Gientraji's poem, where he says, like, Maria loved Raimundo, and Raimundo loved so-and-so, but then once... It ended in suicide, and then the other one just lived with her aunt. So it starts with, like, very romantic, but it just ends tragically. So she plays with that, and it has the same title, Quadrilla. And this is published on the side of us. And her poem is from the point of view of Maria, whose partner, Jean, has been assassinated by the Policia Militar, the military police. And it speaks to a larger phenomenon, her poem, of black Brazilian people being killed many times with absolute impunity by the heavily militarized police. So in response, the Association of Military Police in Bahia criticized the poem. It was removed from the outdoor sites. It was prohibited in Bahia to circulate this poem. So absolute censorship. So the poet herself, Livia Natalia, received death threats. The poet wrote, Is this the same country that declares itself past the military regime of the 1970s and free of censorship. The writers involved in the Poetry in the Streets projects have been denied our right to free speech. So um, I think I'll just rest there. Maybe we can converse more in the question period. Thank you very much. And next we have Hillary Kaplan 
who is the translator of Rilke Shake. I just love the title of that, and it's such a beautiful little book, too. A book of poems by Angelica Freitas, who's also with us. And she's also, Hillary has also translated Ghosts, a collection of stories by Paloma Vidal. And she received the pen translation Fund Award in 2011. And her translations of Brazilian poetry and prose have appeared on BBC Radio 4 and in journals internationally. Welcome, Hillary, who put this whole panel together. <laughs> It was really a collaborative effort to put this panel together, and so thank you all. Thank you for being here. Hi. So I'm going to read a, some excerpts from a few different writers, and I'd like to begin with some poems by Marilia Garcia, who is a contemporary poet originally from Rio de Janeiro and now living in Sao Paulo, and, and I'd like to introduce also Angelica Freitas, who's here from Pelotas, Rio Grande do Sul, and she's going to do me the great favor of reading Marília's poems in Portuguese. M.A. É como o perigoso encadeamento das coisas, murmurou ao sair da sala. Antes de filmar, tudo observou a posição do sol naquela tarde com casas árabes e imaginou a sequência dos diálogos em camadas, quase uma língua em curvas ou ficar parado no escuro. As duas diante da lente não se viam jamais, alternavam a posição, a de branco, sorria sob o fundo de algas, depois enquadrou o deslocamento para Hong Kong num voo atrasado. Como seguir tentando um ângulo inverso se quando passam os dias tudo piora, como seguir o horário girado que adquirem depois de anos de escassez? Sentou num dos bancos de frente para as duas. Há algo que custa dizer e não sabe o que é, um peso geral de coisas, talvez. De onde vem o nome Patagônia e os pinguins? Como precisar a sequência daquelas imagens? E como fazia para nadar tão perto das rochas? M.A., Michelangelo Antonioni. It's like the dangerous thread of things whispered on leaving the room. Before filming, everything observed the position of the sun that afternoon with Mediterranean houses and imagined the sequence of dialogues and layers like a language in curves or holding still in the dark. The two women in front of the lens never saw each other. They reversed position, the one in white, smiled from under the seaweed near the ocean's floor, then framed the displacement to Hong Kong on a delayed flight. How to continue trying an inverse angle if everything worsens as the days go on? How to follow the rotating schedule they acquire after years of scarcity, sat down on one of the benches facing the women? Something painful to say, but who knows what? Perhaps the general weight of things. Where does the name Patagonia come from, and penguins? How to detail the sequence of images, and how swim so close to the rocks? Um, and I'm going to read one more that I don't have in Portuguese, unfortunately, but it's also um, inspired by Ana Cristina César, <laughs> as well as the poem Belfast Tune by Joseph Brodsky. So this is called The Girl from Belfast Alphabetizes At Your Feet. At Your Feet, Atheus Pays is one of Anna Cristina's most beloved books of poetry. The girl from Belfast alphabetizes at your feet. 98 spins around the park, and she falls in circles upon her own weight. 98 times, she said, one could get the impression or not of something definitive. Like the girl from Belfast, her memories folded like a parachute inside the fabric, electrified by static. While she spoke, she descended the side stairs, slicing the clatter of the orchestra. The bicycle wheel loops like music, reducing her reflexes to dust in the air and six hours standing at the drain. One could get the impression or not, seated at the edge of the room. She looks from afar as the car passes by, goes out at night on the trails when everything is vengeance, talks about bridges while crossing the tunnels of the city, 
and puts at your feet in alphabetical order. Camera sweeping the surface, cheat consoled, correspondence, drinking tea nearly to the brim. Evening surrounds the city, hope, intimacy with theater. I think you're lying. Open your mouth, beloved. Open the curtain. Pain, the voice unrecorded on the mountains. One could get the impression or not it was her voice in Mountain View at a speed of one kilometer per hour or a thousand. Before returning to Ireland, she had already begun to forget. She understands that only after the security glass crumbled against her head, only a few seconds till her head against the glass, but it was just part of the route, no way to count the nights or tracks she would travel. Extracting the audio from a frozen image was the label she fixed to the walls to learn to reach the right place at the right time. In the background, the voice through the opening to arrange this book, mouth-watering, now a bit emotional, now I'm a professional, now it's your turn, now the wrong way, now we're in motion, pricks of a needle, that's enough now, water, or vertigo up high, you could wake 30 years later with the image even more vivid when the room is blind. Autobiography, no biography. Blue, I leave the keys loose on the terrace. Blue that does not frighten me. Crosses the bridge, crosses the endless bridge, crosses various city tunnels. I'm letting you know I'm becoming an airplane. Letters, letters when they arrived. Magnifying glasses give up. Wings beating, women and children. Um, and I'd like to just read one. Um, I'm going to read one poem in English from Rilke Sheikh by Angelica Freitas. Um, in the bathtub with Gertrude Stein. <laughs> Gertrude Stein has a big butt. Slide over Gertrude Stein, and when she slides, it makes a great noise as though someone dragged a wet cloth across the huge glass window of a public building. Gertrude Stein, from here to there, it's you. The washcloth behind your ear is all yours. From here to there, it's me. The rubber duckies mine, Gertrude Stein, and thusly we're pleased. But Gertrude Stein is a charlatan, thinks it's fine to let one loose under the water, eh, Gertrude Stein? It's impossible that anyone could so enjoy making bubbles. And because it's her tub, she pulls the plug and steals my towel and runs out stark naked, huge butt descending the staircase onto the streets of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Um, so I just want to make a few remarks on these two writers as well as Paloma Vidal and if I had more time I would read a short excerpt from one of her stories called Asias la Vida, that's life these are three contemporary women writers, poets and, and fiction writers whose work I've had the privilege of translating and I wanted to speak just to a few issues that I have encountered translating their work. In Marilia Garcia's poetry, the, the first two that I read, one of the interesting things that comes up is that she doesn't like to use pronouns, right? And this is a wonderful thing you can do in Portuguese and in other Romance languages. You can get away with not having a pronoun. Um, and the verb can indicate and suggest who is being talked about or, or who is speaking and such. Um, but when we try to write without pronouns in English, it becomes a problem for our English language readers, right? And it becomes a test for what the reader is willing to endure. <laughs> so I've translated other poems by Marilia in the past and just inserted a, a gender for the person being talked about but actually, it's quite intentional that she does not give the gender in the original poems. Um, and so this is always a problem that I face and a choice I have to make. If a gender is suggested for this person, do I just describe it or do I not? And um, in the very first poem I read, I attempted, I think for the first time with Marilia's work, just not to have any pronoun at all. But I only arrived there on the, you know, the 15th draft or the 20th draft, right? It took a, quite a long time to reach that point and then to talk with the editor about, does it work? Can I, essentially, can I get away with this? Um, 
and it's something that's been interesting for me working particularly with Marilia because this is part of her poetry, quite a bit of it. Working with Paloma Vidal's collection of short stories, Ghosts, it's a collection of somewhat linked short stories that um, are about transcultural identity. And Paloma herself was born in Argentina and at the age of two moved to Rio with her family. And she writes a lot about being in between cultures and what it means to grow up with the transcultural identity. So Asias La Vida, which is one of my favorite stories in Ghosts, is about a woman who, a filmmaker, who was born in Brazil and goes back to Buenos Aires to retrace her family roots and encounters a childhood friend who doesn't recognize her. So it's about that that type of recognition, misrecognition that can go on. And I bring up this story in particular because it has quite a bit of Spanish in it. And so when I was translating this collection, I decided to leave the Spanish in Spanish because for me that is part of the experience of estrangement and recognition or not that the reader is supposed to encounter in Paloma's work. And that, again, was a conversation, a different kind of conversation with an editor who at first resisted. And, you know, and uh, that uh, story, in fact, I think, sorry, was published in England at first and then appeared as a radio piece on the BBC, on BBC Four, and then was published in a full-length collection in the United States. So in encounters with three different editors, I reached a lot of different responses to what do you do with the problem of having Spanish in an English story. And to me, it wasn't a problem. And I do feel like we're at a point in, at least as readers in the United States, where we can read some Spanish and nothing bad will happen. <laughs> but... <laughs> but um, but the anxiety is there, and it's been interesting to encounter. I want to wrap up, um, and Angelica is going to read, but I, I finally want to say that the experience of publishing uh, Rilke Sheikh was a, a really wonderful one here, and I feel very lucky to have been able to work with David Shook at Phony Media, who shared so much excitement about this book. And... Angie's work, I don't know exactly what you're going to talk about, but Angie's second book, which I'm working on now, is Rilke Sheikh is about influences and poetic identity. And her second book is called The Uterus is the Size of a Fist. And it really looks at the contemporary idea of woman in Brazil in particular. And it's quite satirical. And it's a very exciting book. But it's been interesting to work on, I think, as a female translator, to be translating a book about woman, about which I have a lot of feelings, um, <laughs> and to see my own sense of what this concept is come up against another cultural sense of this concept. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, thank you all. Thank you, Hilary. So Angelica Freitas is the author of two books of poetry, Rilke Sheikh and Unvutoro e Dutamanio di un Pugno, The Uterus is the Size of a Fist, which has got to be a really fabulous book title, I have to say. And it was a finalist for the 2013 Portugal Telecom Prize. And she's also written a graphic novel, Guadalupe. Her poems have appeared in Granta, The White Review, and elsewhere. And she co-edits the journal Moda do Usar and Company, and lives in Pelotas, Rio Grande do Sul, Brazil. Welcome, Angelica. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here in this panel about uh, Brazilian literature. Well, actually, more than that, about uh, the literature made by women in Brazil. I think it's fantastic that you should have a panel like this, so I'm really happy and honored to be here, particularly now because if you ask anybody who's been following what's happening in, uh, in literature in, in the States, uh, 
I mean, someone who would have an interest for literature that's been done abroad, if you ask them, do you know any Brazilian writers, they will probably mention the name of Clarice Lispector. And we have the translator of the complete stories of Clarice here, Katrina Dodson. Uh, she just won the Penn Award for translation. So, yeah. So, yeah, I'm really, really happy that a woman's name should come up when you think of Brazilian literature. That is great. And also, I, I have to say, I was really happy that Ana Cristina Cesar was mentioned by everybody. <laughs> I would like to think of myself in the lineage of Ana Cristina Cesar. It would be better for me to say that if I hadn't read Ana Cristina Cesar, I wouldn't probably write what I, uh, not probably, I would certainly not write what I write now. So she certainly is the, the most important poet for our generation. So yeah, when you think of a woman's voice uh, for poets who have been born after 1970, I would say Ana Cristina Cesar, definitely. And to mention but a few names, well, you talked about Alice Santana and Marília Garcia, too. I can think of a wonderful poet called Ana Martins Marques, and I hope she's being translated into English. Because if you talk about Brazilian poetry now, you can't really miss that. I think of uh, Julia de Carvalho Hansen, who was also influenced by Ana Cristina Cesar and Virna Teixeira as well. Just to, I was jotting some names down when you were talking about Ana Cristina. I was like, yeah. And this also is a great year because Ana Cristina is homenageada. Um, the, the, there's this uh, literary festival in Brazil called Flip. It's in, a, in the historical town of Parachi in Rio. And uh, I think this year is their 12th edition. And so every year they pick a Brazilian writer to like pay homage. And so far they hadn't chosen any women writers. And people were really, you know, questioning that. Why is that? We have so many wonderful writers. Why, why should you just pick men? So this year, Ana Cristina Cesar is the patron saint of Flip. <laughs> We're really happy about that. I hope they will talk about poetry a lot, because this is another problem. Is that we poets don't get invited so much for these uh, festivals. Anyways, I, don't, I, I wouldn't like to complain. Anyway, so yeah, you know, I was thinking when I, Hillary invited me to, to take part in this panel to talk about Brazilian women writers... That is really hard to talk about being a Brazilian woman writer, especially when I think that what I do in my work is uh, question what is being a woman, actually, and I also question my nationality, not just my nationality. I just, I really, I have to say, I don't really buy into this nationality thing, and I don't really buy into this woman thing either, so yeah. So the question of what is a Brazilian woman writer... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't tell you that because I'm not sure about that either. And I think the best thing is actually not to be sure about it. I think it's a poet's job to, to be constantly inquiring. So this is more or less what I like to do in my work. What mod motivates me to write is to try and find answers. And if I don't get the answers, that's fine too. I like you know, the process of, of getting there. And I'm also really happy that you mentioned Livia Natalia's poem. It just goes to show that poetry can be really powerful, you know. One thing I can tell you about being a Brazilian poet is that you have to be aware that people don't read in your country, okay, and much less poetry. So when you think that a poet could make such a fuss, and I call attention to the violence that uh, is to this day is being done by the police. And, well, Brazil has known nothing but violence in its uh, 500 and, uh, this year's 516 years. So, yeah, nothing but violence, and that a poet can write something and call the attention to that. I think it's really wonderful. I think it's wonderful what she did. So, what I do and uh, what I've done so far, I've only got two books of poetry. 
and a graphic novel. And my first book of poetry is basically a result of the readings I've, I've been doing in my life. And I have to say, when it comes to influences, um, it was never really an issue for me to read Brazilian writers or poets. I never thought, well, I have to read... Um, you know, a Brazilian poet. Like, I have to read Adélia Prado because she's Brazilian. I would just read for pleasure, obviously. But uh, when I come to think of it, I think my influences were mostly from abroad. And I think, if you think of the work of Marília Garcia, for instance, she's a very good reader. You will see that most of of her influences are also from poets from abroad. And the other thing, which is obviously, in my case, I couldn't find any queer poets in Brazil that would really uh, represent me. So I was always looking abroad for poets I could identify with. Not just poets, I mean writers in general. We don't have someone, uh, for instance, like Gertrude Stein in uh, Brazil, or, uh, I don't know. If you think of queer writers, I think we are underrepresented. I've even written a poem for Gertrude Stein, which uh, Hilary read. So, in, in my second book of poems, which is called A Uterus is the Size of a Fist, its origin is simply because I couldn't find poems written by women which were about women in uh, Brazil. I kept thinking, why is it we write about everything but not about being a woman? And I was interested in what I could do with that idea. What sort of poems would come out if I having the experience I have and, and reading the things I have had read, what sort of poems I would uh, come up with. So, and, and also, in this book, um, I have a series of uh, poems, which is called Argentina, which questions identity, uh, sorry, uh, nationality. I spent two years and a half in Argentina, and I wrote this series from the point of view of what it would be like if I were an Argentinian poet. So basically for me, writing poetry is inquiring about things. And I think it would be so much better if I read a few poems now <laughs> than just keep talking about it. So I would just invite Hillary to come read her translations with me. I'll read a poem from uh, my first book for you to get an idea of what I've done here. So this poem has no title. And it goes like this. Dentadura perfeita, ouve-me bem. Não chegarás a lugar algum. São tomates e cebolas que nos sustentam e ervilhas e cenouras, dentadura perfeita. Ah, sim, Shakespeare é muito bom, mas e beterrabas, chicória e agrião, e arroz, couve e feijão? Dentinhos lindos, o boi que comes, ontem pastava no campo, e te queixaste que a carne estava dura demais. Dura demais é a vida, dentadura perfeita, mas come, come tudo que puderes, e esquece este papo, e me enfia os talheres. Perfect teeth, listen up. You're not going to get anywhere. Tomatoes and onions sustain us, and peas and carrots, perfect teeth. Ah, yes, Shakespeare is very nice. But beets, chicory, and watercress, and rice and beans, and collard greens, lovely little teeth, the bull you're eating just yesterday was chomping in the field, and you complained that the meat was tough. Life's tough, perfect teeth. But eat, eat all you can, and forget this chat, and dig in. Ai, que bom seria ter um bigodinho. 
além das lentes dos óculos ficar escondida por trás de uma taturana capilar. Um bigodinho para poder estar. Um bigodinho para sair à rua e ver o mundo, mas se esconder. Um bigodinho para poder ser. Um apêndice naso-bucal, buco-nasal, tipo um chapéu. Ninguém te incomoda nos cafés, a beleza está nos olhos de quem não pode crer e no fim do dia ainda ouvir obrigada, senhor, ao entrar por último no elevador. How lovely it would be to have a little mustache just beyond the lenses of your glasses to hide behind a fuzzy caterpillar. A little stash to let you be a little stash to go out and see the world, but not be seen. A little stash to be as you are. An appendage from nose to mouth, mouth to nose, chapeau-like. No one would bother you in cafes, for beauty is in the eye of the disbeliever. And to even hear at the end of the day, thank you, sir, as you enter, last, the elevator. Okay, thank you very much. how to bring things together a little bit. One thing I found which is really interesting was the sort of, on one hand, embracing of the idea that we're talking about women writers from Brazil, and then questioning what is a woman? What is a woman writer? What is a Brazilian? What does it mean? And having the multiple identities come into it. Um, and the other thing that comes up that I think we have to touch on and talk more about is the issue of who gets translated and who gets published before who gets translated. And when I was living in Brazil in um, 1979, and I went to a bookstore to try to find someone to translate, I found Ferreira Goulart. I found, you know, I found the usual suspects. And um, it took me quite a while to even find Adelia Prado's work, and she was very well known in the country. So um, I guess I'd like to see what their cross currents there are that you want to pick up on in each other's um, comments and we've heard also one thing I wanted to point to is we've heard many many voices here because all, you translate various people and I love that you had gave us a list of other poets to <laughs> so um, I don't know do people have sort of direct connections you want to pursue anyone want to pick up on some I if I can just um, and I didn't get to mention this before but what John was talking about in terms of his commitments of, of writers that he seeks to translate um, that resonated a lot with me. Um, I share similar commitments to translate women writers, to translate Brazilian writers of color, to translate queer Brazilian writers. And I mean, I think Tiffany shares some of those commitments as well. And it's interesting to me that we're yeah. all up here doing this work and then I'm trying to think about that versus when we look at what's the landscape of Brazilian writing available in English, how does it match up, right? And I feel um, I'm very happy that we all share these commitments. And one of the things that I found is that, I mean, so far I feel that it has worked for me in terms of the translation that I do, but I also feel like there is a lot more work to do. I'm participating those poems by Marília Garcia are, are coming out in an anthology of Brazilian women writers that will come out later this year, and it includes 10 women writers writing in all genres. So nonfiction, there's like, a, like anthropology, there's fiction, there's poetry, a whole range. And of those 10 women, I believe that one is a woman of color. And when I saw the list, to me, this was... It wasn't enough. It wasn't right. Um, and there's a question for me about how do we change that. That's open question for me. Yeah, so um, I don't know how we change it, but I think maybe what happens is that, you know, for example, Alice Santana, you know, is in one of the metropoles, right, of Rio or Sao Paulo, so she's in Rio, and um, she had, and this is great for her poetics, right, but she had access to a lot of you know, social capitals. She was, went on three uh, exchanges, one to New Zealand in high school, 
and one to Paris in college, and then she was a fellow at Brown for three months. And um, you know, she's publishing books, you know, in her twenties. And you know, in terms of me sending out bio information, and she's won this prize and that, but she's been at Flip, right? So all of this is very substantiating, right? And so I think editors probably are looking for that kind of substantiation versus me saying, oh, I have this dear, wonderful poet from Bahia who has no <laughs> wonderful prizes. Maybe that makes a difference, I don't know. But it's, it's uh, frustrating, certainly, right? Because we feel there's some quality here and we want to communicate it to editors. I'll just say that uh, with a writer like Ilda Ilst, I mean, this was, uh, if you think about the originality of her, of, of her work, and how prolific she was, it was really sort of shocking to me that the uh, translation of the obscene Madame D didn't, uh, that was the first full-length English translation of Ilsh's work. And, uh, I mean, they're really, I, I believe, Nightboat Books and Abolia Editora have found that there's a constituency in English, you know, for Ilsh. But part of, I think, what one of the sort of key challenges was that she was a woman, writing the things she did. I think if had she been a male Brazilian writer, uh, she would have been translated much more quickly. And one of the sort of heartbreaking things to me was that I first came across Ilsh's work on a website that she set up shortly before she died in 2004, and she actually had translations. She was, I believe, translated into French, and uh, I want to say uh, maybe, um, maybe German or Italian, but she actually had these little... Um, tiny little uh, sections of the obscene Madame D and maybe one other, it might have been letters from a seducer, and uh, as soon as I read them, I thought, who is this person? Why isn't so, why is no work available, you know? Uh, and the, the same is true, actually, I think of someone like Anna Christina Cesar. I mean, uh, there was a British translation of um, uh, At Their Space and a few, a few of her other books but a kind of condensed version of a number of the books. But there hasn't been the kind of extensive publication. And again, you read the work uh, in Portuguese or, or in English, and you think, this, this, is, this person is so original. Why? And I, but I, and I say, you know, had she been a man, <laughs> you know, it probably would be in English. Not only original, in, in, but as we've seen at, on the panel, has been an influence and right. an inspiration to so many subsequent writers. So it even strains the brain further. And I do just want to remind us that a dear friend of Hillman who was here but left is uh, right. has a translation that she's like 99% through. And so hopefully we will actually be all able to read that in the next year. Yeah. Translation of Anna Cristina Cesar's uh, po Hillman. poetic oeuvre. Yeah, yeah. I should say it's a very wonderful story. Yeah, with her mother, who's in her 80s, and they've been working on it together. Her mother grew up in Brazil, oh, wow. so it's a very beautiful story. That's great. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I really like a couple of comments and problems that Hillary raised. Um, she had two really interesting observations from the point of view of the translator. Uh, one of them was, what do you do when a foreign language appears in the Portuguese text? Mm -hmm. Spanish appeared in the Portuguese text. I 100% agree with her. She should keep it in Spanish. Right. The American reader has to deal with the intervention of the other language, just as the Portuguese or Brazilian reader has to do. So there, I completely agree with you. On pronouns, it's a killer of a problem. <laughs> Not because of our position about sex or gender, but because in the English language, uh, uh, we have never had a structural way to uh, uh, present a verbal function without a pronoun. And so when you leave out the pronoun, what do you do to um, buffer the strangeness of the absence of any noun, of any substantive, uh, who is controlling, what, which is controlling uh, the verb? How do you do that? It's a killer problem. That's a great question, um, and it's something that in that in that first poem by Marilia, I I had also considered, and I didn't want to do it because for me the absence of the pronoun I think was more the point, and so it was not 
necessarily trying to find something that that is neither a male pronoun or a female pronoun, but it was to remove a pronoun altogether and see what happened. That, to me, seemed like what she was trying to do. And part of the reason that I say that is that some of her poems, if they're talking about a particular character, she does have in mind a gender for that character, but she doesn't necessarily convey it in the poem. You know, so I've had those conversations with her. Oh, I read this as being about a man, but actually she thought of it as being about a woman. But she is, as a writer, she's very interested in the experience of the reader, right? So she has always said to me, you translate it the way that you read it, which I find very interesting and very open. I mean, I think that's one possibility, but I haven't used it in in this particular case because I don't think that it's what she's going for. Um, and but this, But it's tricky. I mean, I don't know if you guys have encountered this either, but... It just seems to me that if you use the, the they, them, you're bringing into it a whole nother thing that's happening here with English. And if that's not in the original. And also, for a Brazilian writer to leave out a pronoun doesn't change the grammar. I mean, it's right. just normal. People speak, they, they say the verb without saying I. You know, I mean, it's the structure of the language. So it may, no matter what you do, it's going to be different than the effect on the original. <laughs> I think that for, for, for a Brazilian language, the Portuguese Brazil, uh, é uma língua de síntese, de sintetic language, Portuguese Brazil, Portuguese Brazil. O Portuguese, de modo geral, é a, a língua portuguesa é a última das línguas surgidas do latim. Errors. <laughs> so, for example, the word você, you can say in Brazil, you can start off with the depending on what part of the building they are, say você. So, uh, <laughs> Well, it, that should facilitate our translation because American English has a similar relationship to British English, no? A question over here? Especially since in, in the more familiar phrases, there's more words, right? Yeah. So when you, when you condense it, you're making it more formal, kind of. Yeah. Other you know, people have experiences with that? Well, Hills is a little difficult. I mean, I, there's a, there is a Brazilian writer uh, who sort of fits us, but we're not talking about a woman. We're talking about a queer man, John Willis. I'll, okay, so forgive me for in a panel of uh, talking about... Uh, I think we can welcome this. Okay. 
talking about Brazilian women writers to talk about a Brazilian man writer, but he's a, now a, a pretty famous politician, Jean Willis. And when he was uh, still a journalist and uh, teaching in Bahia, I was also, I think, uh, uh, teaching at the Federal University of uh, Bahia, he wrote a beautiful little book called Aflitus. And this book amazes me because it's very simple. It's extremely condensed, extremely. The language is, I mean, every, which is in certain ways like Ilsh, but, but very different. I mean, his, his is the most basic Portuguese. And hers, of course, is just multiple registers welded together, right? But in both cases, they leave out a lot of the integument, right? And when I translated Jean Willis, almost every single person that I've shown it to says that this is just too bare. It does not sound right in English because in English you would expect the ands and all of this extra language. But to me, you lose so much because that, comp- that condensation, that compression, it's like prose poetry, right? So that's one example. And so it's been a struggle because, it's, you know, how do, you, how do I remain faithful to that, his prose and the spirit of that prose? Because he, also the book is about people who, are, who have almost everything taken away. So in a sense, the prose is embodying, exactly, is embodying the experience of these bayanos, right? But, you know, the response is always... You need more. You've got to fill it in, you know, because English prose, particularly fiction, usually has that extra something added in. Well, thank you for coming. We have a great audience. We really appreciate it. And I just think it's great to get these names out and these poems out into the world. It makes me very happy. Thank you for your work. Yes, yes, stay around. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.